Next Chapter Podcasts. Next Chapter Podcasts. Welcome back to How I Got Greenlit. Join Alex and I as we continue our awesome conversation with writer, director, and actor Ollie Blackburn. During this conversation, Ollie gives insight on the production of his film Donkey Punch, and we talk about Spike Lee's hidden 1994 gem, Crooklyn. So, yeah, so it was a low-budget film on a boat with highly controversial sexual subject matter. Explicit yeah. subject matter. I, I guess, you know, one of the things I learned today, when we cast all the actors, I was just like super, super open from the start. Like, you guys, we're going to be doing this. There's going to be full nudity. You know, if you're not comfortable with that, that's fine. Do not go any further with this audition because I'm not going to sugarcoat this for you. This is what we're going to be doing. We're and not. We're not going to get on set, and you're going to be like, "I'm not comfortable right. with this." We are like, right. if you can't do it, you're not. We're not doing it. Right now, there's and a flip. You know, there's a compact to trust. Then there's a flip side as well, which is nothing will be done if you feel uncomfortable. If at any moment you feel uncomfortable, you call cut. The camera shut off immediately. You know. You know that goes both ways. Right. 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 Absolutely. But I mean, to, I haven't, I'm, I apologize, Ollie. I've not seen it yet, but it's, uh, I assume that the folks that you cast in were like in, in 100%. They were, and it was an incredible, you know, it was a great ensemble and I learned a lot about directing actors on that. And it was, if you've done horror films or, or very, very dark thrillers, where you're asking the actors to enter very, very dark places. And, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about, you know, what it means to be an actor. And they're channeling those sort of emotions. It gets really tough for them. You know, every single one of the actors at one point or another had a moment where they were just like, you know, this is really extreme. And part of my job as director is also to sort of just to help people through that and to nurture the performances, but also there's, there's a bit of sort of, counseling or just, you know, just being sort of psychologically aware of people as well, because you are asking them to do very, very tough stuff. You're asking them to get themselves into a headspace to pretend that they've lost their best friend and then they've just lost their other best friend. And if an actor's going to do that realistically and, and truly, then they're going to go to some heavy places. Referring back to our previous conversation about acting and actors, I think the other thing that people have to realize is is that I think actors are, if they're worth their salt, really start to feel emotionally in the moment. And I think even after the camera is, you know, that you cut, I think they manifest that. I think good actors do that and they carry that. And I've seen, I've been on set and seen actors who have gone through scenes like that and they clearly are visibly uh, shaken by either the loss of life or the way someone has died or whatever the case may be, even if it's not have to do with a slasher movie or a violent end to someone in a film, even in just like love, losing a loved one, a death, or maybe your relationship fails, you see actors manifest that and carry that. And actually going into the day or even days before, you see them start to carry it because they start to think about the days that are coming up and keeping those emotions uh, segmented for when they need to play is a, is a real, that's a gift. 
that because when you yell cut after I'm sure some of the scenes that you did, I can only imagine that you still see the look on their face. Like what the hell did I, what did I just put myself through? Like my soul. I, I, I think actors have that ability. They do. And, and if they're going to be really good, then, then that's what they're channeling. And, yeah. and I think you have a huge responsibility as a director to be really respectful and sensitive about that. A hundred percent. Um, and that's one of the things that's so shocking about the whole Me Too thing is is a part of the Me Too thing or or you know directors abusing their trust is it's it's an inc- it's a psychological abuse because you're asking actors to go to places they would never go otherwise ever to to some of the deepest places in their soul and 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 you have to be sensitive about that and if you're manipulating that or if you're using that for your own purposes you know. That that's a shocking thing. Mm-hmm. Agreed. You know, I've just been doing the show Dangerous Liaisons. We had a a sequence uh, with a wonderful actress, and um, and she just wasn't quite. You know, it was a scene with her son, and she just wasn't quite nailing it. It just wasn't happening. We were shooting and reshooting, and it was a complicated thing. And and I just, I I wasn't. This wasn't planned at all. We were setting up a very complicated shot, and I just started talking to her. And we ended up talking about her mum and her, her relationship with her mum. And she was just talking and talking. I let her talk. It was actually pretty interesting what she was saying. And then the camera was ready and we called action. And fucking hell, she blew through the scene. And at the end of it, she was like, I don't know what you did there. I don't know what the conversation did, but it just unlocked everything. Yeah. Yep. And <laughs> that's what acting is, is, is you're channeling these things deep inside you at some very primal level. And often subconsciously you're using them. And and that's a powerful thing. And particularly when you're doing things like, you know, donkey punch or horrors and stuff, you, you know, I think everyone on the crew has to be aware that, that there's going to be, like you were saying, there's going to be some after effects. You, you know, you, you have to be sensitive to them and, and create a good working environment for them. If crews are joke, we're, we're preparing for a scene and a crew makes a dumb joke. And the actor's trying to get their head in the scene. That always annoys me because it's just like be respectful of, of where this person's head's at. Right. I did have an AD fall asleep once on set during a, a, a <laughs> <laughs> during during a sex scene. And uh, he did not he was actually snoring, snoring loudly. Wow. And he did not I love the guy very much and actually it turned out to be a good thing because he had sleep apnea and uh he went, <laughs> he went to the doctor and he was a really bad it's I think it saved his life, but he yeah. didn't he didn't make it to the next day. But he wow. like the like a, a really amazing uh very like pinnacle of the movie sex scene. It was it was a love making scene between two of the main characters and very attractive people and there's not very many people in the room as you know on a closed set and just in the background you could hear mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'll never forget when the lead the lead who wrote the movie stood up <laughs> not clothed and said what the fuck <laughs> wow that's a that's a that's, Wait, a, look, that's a good I one I just gotta say this Another rule, if any rule comes out of this episode, it's never good to sleep during sex. Terrible. It's a terrible thing. It's, it's, <laughs> someone's not doing something correctly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
so you get through the process of this, you know, you edit it. You make your film. You yeah. make your first film. Now, yeah. now what? Did you have distribution? Did you go to festivals? Like, what do you do with your film in hand now? Because that's the part that people don't tell you. They tell you, make your film, but they don't tell you now what. The good news was we got into Sundance. Like, we premiered at Sundance. Great. Wow. We sent Great. it to Sundance. They loved it. Uh, it was a hot film. Everyone was talking about it. We had the midnight screening, had that thing, the feeding frenzy, you know, the agents all flood the stage, the actors are getting signed up, I'm getting business cards. It was all of that. It's a film that whether people like it or loathe it, they talk about it. You know, it's not a film that you mm-hmm. forget. It also, by the way, has a phenomenal soundtrack on it. It's There's a lot of stuff to kind of enjoy about this movie. So that was that was amazing. And it was kind of like this sort of, wow, I've made it moment, you know, not just made a film, but it's, it's a hot film. Was that your, was that your green, green lit moment? Uh, that was my green lit moment. But um, there was a flip side to it, which I think is very specific to, to Donkey Punch, which, you know, other people making first time films won't have, which is that material, you know, and this is before, you know, things like euphoria. This is before, Things that were kind of sexually frank were less common back then on a mainstream level. And so when our film was released in America, it got given an NC-17. And the reason it got given an NC-17 wasn't the violence, of which there's a huge amount in the film. It wasn't the, the there was a, there's a lot of female nudity. It wasn't because of that. It was simply because in a spirit of kind of just being so honest and showing everything, we showed a couple of penises, naked penises, and that freaked the American census out. And I just say that because it's very different now. Now, like you watch Euphoria, you can't turn your head to the, all the penises. It's literally, you know? it's literally wall to wall. It's penises. everywhere. People found the film quite shocking. I've got pinned on my wall, framed the Daily Mail, which is the biggest selling newspaper in Britain, called the film the sickest, most depraved film ever made. Oh, that's gonna feel. It's gonna feel good. <laughs> a very, very, very successful director. Snuff film. <laughs> very successful British director. Unnamed. Who hadn't even unnamed. Unnamed. Hadn't even seen the film. Uh, made a point. Hadn't seen the damn thing. Had just heard about it. Made a point of taking my producer out for lunch and castigating him for two hours about how he could make such a sick, depraved piece of work. And he hadn't oh even seen God. the thing. So there were a lot of people who they just heard. Donkey punch sex, you know, violence, this is sick and gross. And 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 one of the companies who financed the film, and to this day, it's a, it's a miracle we got them to finance the film, but afterwards they were like, we hate this film. I wish I'd never made it. So you've got that going on. And I can't be naive about that because it's like you were saying with the title, you know, Ollie, what were you, you know, you can't have imagined people were going to accept it, like meet the parents or something. This is not a feel-good movie. Whenever people ask me, what film have you made? And I've said, Donkey Punch. Immediately I said, whatever you do. And they, they, they're like, we're going to watch it. I'm like, do not show it to your family. Do not watch this at Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're going through a messy divorce. Right, <laughs> right, right. Freak everybody else out. But then on the other side, there were people who saw the film and they were like, you know, this is great. You know, this is a genre film, but it's about sexual politics. It's about toxic masculinity. It's about people partying like there's no tomorrow and you know this was all before the crash in 2008 where there was this feeling at the time 
like there was all this money sloshing around and young kids spending money and there was this feeling of, you know, how's this going to end? This can't carry on forever. And I think the film sort of captured that a little bit. And, you know, and I love things like Deliverance, like hard-hitting film. Or I love, you know, Paul Verhoeven's one of my favourite directors. I love people who make classic genre films, but they're about something. But they're still hitting the genre beats. Paul's hit some nerves, I think, in his day. He's, he has. I think he's a genius, you know, because he's, I think, Robocop is one of the greatest comments of American capitalism ever made. And it's one of the greatest sci-fi films ever made. I buy that for a dollar. <laughs> right. And that's what I wanted to do with Donkey Punch. But you are going to piss a lot of people off. And so there was that going on. And that, and I wanted to make a different type of film after that. And I think a lot of people were like, well, you know, he's just kind of a schlock filmmaker. And the other thing was I got an, lived the dream. I got the fancy American agent and came over and did all the fancy meetings at all the studios. I'd walk in and all anyone was offering me was either a thriller set on a boat. Like everywhere I went into, everyone was like, you're probably bored making shows on boats, but we've got a script set on a boat. Do you want to do that? And or sort of teen horror films. And I just didn't really want to do another teen horror film because I'm very proud of Donkey Punch, but I didn't want to just be seen as someone going down one path. I found it tough to make the sort of film I wanted to make after that, which is the flip side to that awesome green light moment of going to Sundance and making a film that everyone's talking about. And not only that, at one of our screenings at Sundance, someone actually hyperventilated and passed out in the theatre <laughs> from the donkey punch sequence and an ambulance had to come and take him away. And I was just like, if I can do that with my filmmaking, that's pretty fucking rock and roll. Did you feel that when you were going through the editing process and you were putting the film together and, you know, you had decided on the title and everything, did you expect there, did you go into it expecting blowback from all of it? Or were you like, damn the torpedoes, I'm going to make the film that I want to make. And did you prepare yourself for that? I'm curious. It's a bit of both. I don't know if this is the right philosophy or not, but I, I try not to second guess things. You know, I, I feel that as artists, if we're sort of guessing what someone else might want, then you're, you're, then we're you're of, in trouble. I, we're clipping our own. Yeah, movies. I 100% and, agree with you. And I had this kind of sort of sanguine thing. Look, this is the film I've made, for better and for worse. You know, I had, you know, I had my like New York indie film I wanted to make. I couldn't get that made. You know, this was the film I made. I believed in it because as we've been talking about, you know, Verhoeven and these other people, I, I love filmmakers who make these types of films. And I didn't make She's Gotta Have It as my first film. I made Donkey Punch, a tough, hard horror thriller. So I just need to kind of strap myself to the sail and take this boat wherever it's going. Right. But having said that, I was expecting blowback. There was this thing where I suddenly discovered that I was pissing off people on both sides. Like the arch conservatives, the daily mail hated the film and then died in the wool. Left-wing liberals hated the film as well. And I was kind of like, Oh, I didn't see that coming. Uh, Why? You're a uniter, not a divider. <laughs> um, you know, but then the, there were people who, who really, really dug the film. But I think the thing I didn't anticipate was the thing of you've done this and that's all that we're going to hire you to do from now on. That, that did take the best surprise. Right. 
but you've seen it before, right? I mean, Ryan, we've seen it. We, our guests talk about it all the time. Yeah. You get pigeonholed, but I, I will say Alex and I talked about it though, too. I would much rather have a hole to pigeon. No, no. I'd much rather have just people hating me. I'd rather have some reaction or a visceral reaction than no reaction at all. Either then you no, love me or hate no me. Reaction. Yeah. Ollie, that means you made a choice to make a film and you pit, you stuck to your guns and you made the film that you wanted to make right. and you, yeah. the audience was however divided they and were, damn the, you, yeah. they, they reacted to it. It wasn't like right. people are like, meh, two and a half stars. It's not that right. people. Because what? The opposite of love is not hate. It's ambivalence. It's ambivalence. And so I, I applaud you for sticking to your guns because you got a reaction to it because that's all you, as an artist and as a filmmaker, you just don't want yeah. people walking out going, Meh. you want people passing out in the aisle, having to call, you know, an ambulance <laughs> being called. Like I would take, I would wow. take the hate and the love on the extreme levels rather than ambivalence. I, cause it means I, I actually stuck to my guns and didn't, right. didn't compromise. So cheers to you on that. That's a big thing. I would just say to anyone who wants to be an artist is you're going to have to make choices. And I just say, stand by those, cho- you know, whatever choice you make, understand you're going to have to defend this choice for the rest of your life. So yes. really believe in it. Yeah. There's nothing is worse than being that person going, Oh, you know, I never really believed in that. And the flip side, I think to that Ali is kind of, is just allowing the wind to take you wherever it goes. And then in the end, you don't have something that you like, uh, mm-hmm. you don't have something that you love and you don't have anything that the audience loves either. So what was the point of that? Yeah. What's the point of working 16, 18 hours a day? What's the point of right. working on a boat in an independent film that almost sinks? Like, what is the <laughs> point, what is the point of the entire? Because I again, we st- can't stress this enough. It, it is hell. It is. <laughs> it's it's really hard. It's tiring. There is no time to sleep. You are literally working and writing and working and writing and working yeah. and writing and trying to put these things together. And it is moving impossible mountains to even get one done. And to be able to do that yourself and to get it out there and the way you wrote it and you came up with a story and got it and got, you know, got it funded, got, even if they hated it, you at some point in time convinced them that it was the right thing to do. And just to get that done is, is 1%, you know, it's Alex and I are always saying it's the 1% of the 1% of the 1%. And it's, I think that if you don't stick to your guns creatively and if you don't follow your heart and where you think you should go, no matter what the film is, um, uh, yeah. you've done yourself a huge disservice because it's not, it's not worth it. There's not enough money in the world to, you know, cause we all can't be, um, you know, we all can't be Chris Nolan. It just, it just doesn't happen that way. Yeah. But there's also the reason we do it is that high that you get when you do get the thing through, when you do get greenlit, when you do make it and you're proud of it, it, it's an indescribable high. And I use the word high deliberately. It's like all these, you know, your brain is operating at this level. And it goes back to how I fell in love with this, sitting in that movie theater, watching Apocalypse Now or something, and just your brain going to this level And you're like, I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to achieve that. Yeah. And so, well, tell us what, what are the, now that you've done features and now you're doing television, Mm -hmm. what what would you say is the difference in the process? I know you said the British way of 
television direction is slightly different than the American way. Can you talk? And about also, that? are they yeah. limited? Are they considered limited series or are they actual series, Ollie? Uh, like, because you know the limited series is all the rage nowadays. So, I mean, I, I I've done both. You know, I've, I've been doing high end TV for the last ten years now, and I've done. I did a show called The Widow, which is a limited series on Amazon. I did a show called Sand. Is that Kate Beckinsale? Kate Beckinsale? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Some good action in that called, show, by the way. Great, thank you. The show I'm doing now, which is Dangerous Liaisons, which is is being released on Stars in November, done the first season, and I'm going back to the second season. So that's a repeating series, and you know, Stars are clearly very hopeful it will be a successful series. You know, the big difference between TV and film is that you know, particularly with independent film, it's run on spit and bubble gum and you beg, steal and borrow and you don't know if you're going to make that thing until, you know, until the camera's rolling and even then <laughs> you don't know, sure. you, if you don't know if you're um, going to make it to day 15 you're waiting, you know, you're waiting to get that piece of talent attached, you're waiting to get that final piece of financing attached you know, with TV if someone has got a TV show that's happening, it means that a broadcaster has given them a broadcast date and a budget, and they then have to shoot, edit, and get that thing done by that broadcast date. No, mm-hmm. no wriggle room. You've got to do it. Whoever's out there, you've got to find the actors who'll do it. You've got to find the crew who'll do it. And you've just got to fill that, that bucket. And there's an amazing amount of oversight too. You can't, you cannot, I don't know if it is that way in, in British television, but you literally yeah. can't buy a bag of nails unless there's three people above you who you, you have to ask to buy a bag of nails. Right, right. Which can be good in that they are professionally run productions. And if Absolutely. you've got like a really experienced line producer who's done loads of stuff, then they can actually be really helpful and really educational and and also they'll know how to maximize your budget so that's just to say you know the great thing about tv is you know you're going to make the damn thing and you don't have all that uncertainty of film and if you're lucky enough to do an ambitious show with good creators then in the last 10 years tv has got so ambitious you know and you've got you know al pacino's doing tv and barry levinson's doing tv and tv is the new movies and the old cliche that all the films Hollywood would have made in the seventies is now TV shows. And that that's true. And TV has raised its game so incredibly that it's just become very cinematic. What we're doing on dangerous liaisons is epic cinema. It's just epic cinema. So that's amazing for a director. I don't know if it's the downside, but something to be aware of is it's not so much a director's medium. It's a writer creator's medium. You know, if you, Think about TV, you know, you're thinking about Vince Gilligan, you're thinking about Damon Lindelof, you know, you're thinking about the creators. Those are the people who get, you know, all the plaudits and all the press because they're the visionaries behind these shows. Mm-hmm. So they're really the auteurs in the TV world. I've been lucky enough to work with some great creators who've been very giving and very, very collaborative and very welcoming of, of what I bring as director. So I do like that. But if you want to be that kind of auteur filmmaker, then film is film is where you want to be, and particularly independent film. But it's completely unreliable. <laughs> and you're probably going to be a pauper, and you're probably going to destroy your whatever marriage you have. <laughs> <laughs> 
So everybody that's out there who, who wants to be super excited about doing independent movies, it's going to cost you everything and your marriage. So all your money, all your relationships. But guess what? In the end, you might well don't forget your, your on bank account on Shutter. Your physical, your physical health, oh, your physical your health, your hair health. probably. Yes, yeah. gray hair. Either weight, fat, or skinny, Stress. one way or the other. Heart Hi- problems, hypertension, hypertension yeah. Uh, maybe <laughs> some drug abuse or alcohol uh, problems. <laughs> if you've quit smoking, you will unquit Probably smoking. Animal abuse. You guys reference Chris Nolan, most successful director in the world. His first film was a 10,000 pound movie. That's, exa- following. that's exactly right. That's exactly right. You know, and it's like, and we're, you know, we're all entering the casino, right? We're all entering the casino with our nest bank. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And, you know, one of you out there might be the next Chris Nolan. And please do not let me be the person to dissuade the next Chris Nolan. Yeah, and, but, but by the way, you know, Chris Nolan, his second and third movies weren't big ones either. Like he yeah. didn't, like, but his vision, I think if you watch his early movies, the vision that he had and the storytelling that he had was kind of baked in, was baked into those early stories that he was telling. But he started right. out just like everybody else. He took his he took his golden ticket in and was like one please and he luckily eventually he hit it and right. now he really is like oh July fourth twenty twenty five yeah keep that date open I'll deliver you, <laughs> I'll deliver you a movie I'm not gonna take notes at this time or questions just know <laughs> just know Paramount that July fourth twenty twenty five you will be getting a movie from me I'm not telling you the title. Don't even fucking ask but, me. But, but, you know, there's a huge lesson here. You know, all the biggest, absolutely biggest, most commercially successful filmmakers in the world, you know, Chris Nolan, George Lucas, Jim Cameron, Peter Jackson, they all started with spit and bubblegum independent. Abs, 100%. Yeah, 100%. And yeah. they are the most commercial, like you say, no studio in the world is going to question one of their decisions because they make so much freaking money. Yeah, you just kind of roll it out. You just, you, oh, what you got? Yeah. What you got? Okay. We'll just bring it over here. I've got Avatar uh, 2, 3, and 4. When, yeah. when okay. is it going to be released? In 15 years? We'll yeah, take it. You, How much yeah. you need? Bag yeah. of money? Got it. Yeah. I mean, you guys have alluded to this on, on other episodes, but I really do think it's these, you know, it's these three things that you, you need to be aware of. You know, you've got to, you've got to have talent, you know, you just, you've got to have some modicum of talent. Oh shit. Um, Goodbye everybody. You know, know, look, you can get away for a little bit without talent. We all know people who aren't that talented and, and, and kind of, you know, lag it and do okay. But at some point, if you're not punching your weight, people, We'll move on. Yeah. You know, talent's not enough. There's a lot of really talented people out there who just haven't had the breaks and are now working construction or, you know, raising families or whatever it might be. And, you know, and they're brilliant. You've got to have luck. You've just got to be like me, be have the luck to have been in that room when the guy needed that particular project. You've got to have a bit of luck. And I don't think there's anyone who's successful out there who hasn't had a moment of luck or several in their careers. And the third thing is because it is grueling and it is tough and it is attrition, it's you gotta be persistent and tough. You're gonna get hit by a lot of things. And and the worst thing about those things is often those are things that you never anticipate. 
and can't control. You can't control. After I did Donkey Punch, I did an interview with one of the great British directors, Nick Rowe. I interviewed him and he gave me this piece of advice. I've never forgot. He, he, I think he was looking at me as like this snotty Taro filmmaker. He's like, listen, you've got to be aware, kid, because life has a habit of biting you in the ass when you least expect it. Yeah. Yeah. Trust yeah. in nothing. And, and, and that happens and it's going to happen whether you like it or not. The thing is, how do you handle it? How do you pick yourself up off the mat every day after day after day? Thank you for joining us for our continuing discussion with talented director Ollie Blackburn. Be sure to check out our past episodes of How I Got Greenlit, available on Apple, Spotify, and all the places where you find your favorite podcasts. Here's a clip from our fascinating conversation with Sophia Sondervan, and her take on what it's like being a film student in today's world. I think there were a lot of kids that came from very, very privileged backgrounds and had access to very great resources. And so nowadays, I think it's so much easier to make a film. So film is just so much more accessible to everyone because we don't have to buy this expensive film stock. We don't have to buy all those supplies. And so I think when students enter the film school, they're already so much more prepared because a lot of them have been making films in high school, even as small kids. They're just so much more aware of what visual media is and what it looks like, what works, what doesn't work. They're just much, much, much more savvy than we were, I think, because we just had these sort of art movies that were made by different directors that we were following, and that was like our our lesson material. That was a clip from our conversation with producer Sophia Sondervan. Enjoy it and other conversations with working writers, directors, producers, and actors in our show archives. Thank you again for joining us on How I Got Greenlit. Now, back to the multi-talented director, Ollie Blackburn. All right. And now for your film that you uh, have been inspired by, a fellow NYU graduate, Spike Lee. Yes. And it's not Do the Right Thing. It's not Malcolm X. It's a deeper cut called Crooklyn. Sorry, Gray. You sorry why? Sorry I called your mother a hawk. And you sorry about teasing me about being left back three times, about being on welfare, about me and my brothers having three different fathers. All right already. I said I was sorry. This time, Spike Lee takes a whole new look at growing up in his old neighborhood. Is the TV on? No! I'm crazy because I got five of y'all. Run me, stark raving mad. Somebody left the toilet seat up. I almost fell in again. Oh, you flat-chested witch. Oh, I gotta eat this. Black-eyed peas have calcium. All the calcium in the world ain't gonna make up for this nasty taste. Can I have some tricks? No, please. Say no, you idiot. Give it up. Daddy doesn't want to fight and yell. All Daddy wants to do is play his music. In a place called Crooklyn. And All it took to keep it together was a little love, peace, and soul. Why did you pick Crooklyn? What what is it about Crooklyn that inspires you? Just to back up before I get to that, you know, to put Spike Lee in context, he's this massive filmmaker. I remember seeing Do the Right Thing when it first came out. No one 
in the late 80s was making a film like that. He's a trailblazer. He completely does his own thing, doesn't compromise on anything. And in the 80s where there were all these huge feel-good movies and Hollywood was making all this kind of really, really glossy stuff that was was great, but it wasn't really about, it wasn't like now where everyone's making a social issue movie. No one was doing that Hollywood then. Do the Right Thing happened. It was a film about racism told from the point of view of someone who wasn't normally making films at that time. And it was just mind blowing to everyone. And, and the way, you know, Fight the Power, the way it used music, it was just a revolutionary film. And then Michael X was a politically driven film. So he was this guy who was like this politically driven, super, super hypercharged auteur. And then he makes this movie and it's kind of like a free form jazz version of a movie about childhood in the seventies. And it's this film based very closely on his life about growing up in Brooklyn in the early seventies with a dad who's a, a wannabe artist who never is really achieving his full worth, played by Delroy Lindo. And it's told from the point of view of a little girl called Troy. And it's just completely told from a child's point of view. And then it has a very tragic end where, spoiler alert, where her mother develops cancer and dies. And you see it all through this child's eye point of view. And it was like Spike Lee made this film about childhood where he just stopped worrying about politics. He stopped worrying about all the stuff that everyone was talking to him about. And he made this freeform movie. And it's one of the most beautiful films about childhood that I've ever seen because it's not locked into a plot. It's very kind of like a shaggy dog tale. and It goes off in lots of directions. There's music everywhere. He just, he very... Wall to wall. Wall to wall. He, he said he had enough music yeah. for two movies. Well, yeah, they put out like a two volume. I remember the soundtrack was huge. Yeah, yeah. It was like every song of that era was on that soundtrack. 70s classics. Ooh, child, things are going to get brighter. Ooh, yeah. So that's, so there's this scene, and this is my favorite scene in the movie. Uh, Troy's mother dies, and it's just heartbreaking. It blows you to pieces. Because again, he's showing all through the child's point of view. You don't see her die, by the way. That's another thing, because the children don't see right. her die. And then she has to go to a funeral, and she refuses to go to the funeral. And She's got this funeral suit made of polyester, which is ridiculous. And one of the things her mother said to us, you know, don't ever wear polyester. And there's this heartbreaking scene where her father convinces her to go to the funeral and dress in this ridiculous polyester suit. And she goes to the funeral in this polyester suit and they play the child. And I remember watching it and I was crying at the pathos of it and also laughing my ass off at how ridiculous she looks at the same time. And I think for any filmmaker to achieve that, to be able to get you to an emotional level where you're laughing and you're crying and they're both truthful emotions is an incredible achievement. And if you go, if you went up to an executive and you said, I'm writing a very moving thing about childhood and the mother dies and I'm going to put in a laughter beat at the funeral, they would tell you, rewrite that shit right now. You can't do that. Don't do that. You're going to lose the audience. And it just shows, you know, stick to your guns, man, because it's one of the most powerful moments. So foul! No, right? We're the referees! We have to What? Don't answer me, what? Turn the goddamn TV off. I'm watching the Knicks! I don't care what it is, no TV, I don't 
screen while she want. I'm watching this game. it i cannot believe the acting from those kids on like the old I'm, adage the old adage of never work with children those kids are fantastic it's fantastic the delroy lindo is fantastic the whole alfred woodward alfred Wood, the whole just everything about the movie i, I know uh, i hadn't seen it in a while it was good to revisit it I don't think I was a fan before. I'm certainly a fan after watching it again. I just could not believe the, I, you know, it's for some reason I, it was lost on me. I just could not believe it was a Spike Lee movie. I don't know why. Right. I don't right. know why it's not. I like Spike Lee movies, but it was so, it was such a snapshot of childhood. I don't know why, but on Apple TV and Alex and I both, had the same issue happen, but on Apple TV, when the when Troy goes to live in the South with her yeah. auntie, the format changes and it goes. Yeah, no, that was the on purpose. That's intentional. Yeah. Thought, no, I yeah, people thought there was something wrong with the. No, I yeah. know, but on my for some reason, it. it's not like I could, my television couldn't. You know, my super expensive television that I bought to watch movies couldn't translate it correctly, so everyone was thin. Like it wasn't like it didn't. Yeah, yeah that's, it's no, that's meant to be. That's that, meant to do that. That's that. Yeah, he did that on purpose. He did do it on purpose. Yeah, because yeah, it was to show like the South. That they, she was out of sorts. Like yeah. it wasn't. Oh, it's real uh, to her. Oh yeah, it was, yeah. It was driving me crazy. Because she yeah. goes to like that Stepford Wives kind of cookie cutter, cookie cutter suburb. Yeah, and it's like to show how come constrained she is right and by the way ryan do you remember i wanted to do that and you said no fucking way <laughs> i did i wanted to do this you know why you know why because i spent 15 minutes trying to figure out how to tell my television how to change the format so it would look right because it was driving me fucking crazy and i didn't even watch that part of the movie yeah but except, you're talking about yeah, it i'm right? talking about it except for when the dog gets the dog gets launched out of the the hideaway bed which is fucking hilarious by the way best yeah. best dog launch ever 
It's brilliant. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not talking about it. And look, if the television, I, I think it would be cool if the format, if the television could have recognized that the format had changed and actually changed the format. So, because I know what he was trying to do, I understand creatively what he was trying. To do. But you know, that's he doesn't get back in the '90s and the late '80s. He was amongst all the other things he was doing. He was like a visual experimenter and visionary. On that, on clockers. He did the upside down. He does the upside well, down. Even thing. like the guys hanging upside like down. Yeah, stone. they took your. They, they, right. Do you remember that? Isn't that yeah. called? Isn't that the way your music video is called? That's 70, my video. Seventy-eight stone wobbly or something like that. <laughs> and he was seventy-eight stone wobbly. And he was, you know, he's playing with camera techniques. He was doing some crazy, crazy, wild stuff. His angles are awesome, by the way. His his you use know, of framing of like the banister yeah. and especially that in shot when she's standing against she's standing camera right and you see them on the stoop in the background right. and the framing is just like his framing right. is is just killer. Right. And that wild sequence where she's with the junkie and she's floating over the block. Oh right. when who when Troy is? Troy is. There's a scene where she rides the crane. Oh, I the scene that sticks out to me is when yeah. when her brother comes in after the during the funeral and says they took my money. Sniffy Sniffy took my money and they run outside and she's got the stick up in the air and she's like ah yeah, yeah. and they're riding <laughs> yeah. they're like riding on the back of a of a cart a on donkey punch yeah him. and she smashes him in the head. He goes, "Why did you do that?" <laughs> And, you know, you mentioned this earlier, but the other thing about Spike Lee that he needs major props for is he's incredible with actors. And Un- he has unbelievable, amazing ensemble. Almost every major black actor now rose up through, you know, Denzel Washington, Wesley Snipes, Delroy Window, Sam Jackson. Ali Berry. Ali Berry, Giancarlo Esposito. I mean, just his, his taste in actors is incredible. He's an actor himself. I want to stress a much mm, better actor ish. than I ever was. <laughs> yeah, but- <laughs> yeah, Mars yeah. Blackman's a great character. Uh, no. In 30 second chunks. It, <laughs> it is devastating to, I had forgotten the mom, the mom dies and it is, yeah. it is, it's devastating. And it, and the children handle it. I think how children of their age would like, there's not a lot of tears. My scene yeah. that I really enjoy is right before the one you're talking about or right after the one you're talking about when she's sitting on the couch and is his name till comes and says, what can I get you a little bit? And I got, cause I have a friend who calls his daughter a little bit, a producer that I work with and he calls his daughter a little bit. And, uh, mm. and her brother, her eldest brother comes and sits down he sits down on the far end of the couch and then he moves all the way over and grabs her hand. And that, yeah, yeah that was pretty much over for me right there. Right. I had to compose and, myself. You, know, you were saying before, but you know, I think one of the lessons of this film creatively is it's a film where Spike Lee just he didn't have anything to prove. He'd done all these weighty films. I love a lot of them. I think sometimes he can get a bit heavy-handed. This film, he didn't have anything to prove. He's not making a statement. He's just connecting. He wrote it with his sister, and he's connecting with his childhood making a film about childhood and out of that I think once you stop thought you don't care because of course you care but once you stop feeling that there's all this pressure on you if you're really good you can do amazing things yeah 
I don't know if this movie could be made today. Quite uh, sadly, I just don't. I don't. don't, I think think it's. Why do you say that? I think think it's a streaming. I I think think it's a streaming movie. Like it's one of those we. You know, we've been talking about a. We've been talking about the fact that these movies that came out in the nineties that you could recoup some of your money back with with DVDs or VHS sales or rentals or everything and make your money back from a movie. I just, I don't think this movie gets made today. A family, I, it's sad. It's just some of the things that we've lost yeah. in media today. I don't think anyone gives you money to make a movie about a black family where the mom dies. And it just, it's just right. basically a snapshot. But what if the mom's a vampire? Robot or vampire so, or superhero? Possibly. <laughs> possibly. Right. But there's the other lesson, I think, that... You know, he had his moment in the 90s where he could make films like this that normally you'd never get to make. And he took it. And yeah. he took the studio money and he made the film about his family. Yeah, and it, and it, it is good. I really, I really enjoy it. The, the, also, the breakdown of the father being a musician and trying to make yeah. money and the mom actually having to deal with the finances of, of the household. It, it's a snapshot we just don't get anymore. We just we just don't get yeah. it. And, and that's that. I think that hurts us all, that folks can't make because i know there's stories out there there are there are all there are stories out there that we could be told that just aren't getting told anymore yeah at least not, not in this way but it, it's fan, fantastic by the way also another rupaul's i think rupaul that's her first oh my god what a cameo yeah that's her first to foray into film i really yeah i i know it's not for everybody but i i really liked it i really like it and it just shows Spike Lee's talent as a, I mean, he was, how long had he been out of film? I mean, he'd been out of film school for a while at this point, I guess. Yeah. You know, he, yeah, he, he'd done do the right thing and Malcolm, Malcolm X. Malcolm X. Blues. Yeah. God, he's, he's off. He's given so much, given so much to the film community, you know, people don't yeah. realize he's an icon. But again, because it's not a politically determined film, you know, even people who might not normally watch a Spike Lee film, this is just a great film about childhood. A hundred percent. Stand by me if you like cares. You're gonna love this. A hundred percent. Yeah, he done. She's got to have it. School days. Do the right thing. Mo better blues. Jungle fever. Boys in the hood. Like Malcolm X, and then Crooklyn. And that's yeah. just like how many how many shots are you? Like he's just taking <laughs> shots all over the place. He's like right. putting points on the and board. After Crooklyn, he does you know Clockers and and uh, he got Game, which are pretty big movies. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, Girl Six was uh, Girl Six, although not fi- not financially a winner, but a well very well known movie. Mm. Yeah, he got Game. Yeah. He's just, he's like, he's one of our modern best. What do you think, Alex? <laughs> any final parting I mean, shots? I, parting I mean, words? Do you have anything to add to the Crooklyn thing? I mean, you weren't, I nah. don't think you were so, th- you're not a huge fan of Crooklyn, right, Alex? I, <laughs> no, it's okay to have a differing I, opinion. It's not I, like Spike's yeah, going to call I, the show I, and throttle yeah. you. I just, um, what's wrong? I, what's yeah, wrong with I it? I thought it was a little, mer- I just, I, it was a little meander. It does I mean, meander. There is no doubt. It it's, uh, look, I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. It, the thing that it made me immediately think of 
was this new trailer I just saw called The Fablemans. Oh, this is the this is this is uh, which the, is, uh, this is already Spielberg's getting Oscar buzz. People are already talking yeah. about yeah. it. Yeah, and I just I I haven't seen the movie. I can't judge the movie. But I'm just like sharks, sharks, uh, sharks, and jets, jets. Well, I'm like jets and sharks. Look, and jets you've been doing sharks. autobiography stuff. Just throw an alien or a shark or like a Nazi in there. <laughs> <laughs> I, can I just say, yeah, I'm say just, it, say it. Nazi into, say into it. 1973. Yeah, actually, it's the Marathon Man. That is the Marathon Man putting a Nazi into Brooklyn in 1973. <laughs> it's been done. Well, no, I. <laughs> I'm I'm mixing I'm mixing metaphors. I'm saying Spielberg is making just a on the nose, like very thinly veiled yeah. autobiographical film about his childhood. So it's almost like another checkpoint on the I have juice now. Don't fuck with me. I'm not asking for fifty million, but I want ten, and I and I'm I will take no notes, and this will be my love letter to my childhood, and then I'll give you a big one after this. Right, one, you know, but I'll, you know. I respect that you may not have liked Brooklyn as, as much as I did, but there is something about films, about childhood when it works in film that makes it one of the most cinematic things like Stand By Me or The 400 Bloods. There's something about representing childhood on film that is so, if you get it right. Yeah, he did it great on Empire of the Sun and E.T. <laughs> and, and, and Close Encounter. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. yeah. E.T. I just, I, I get a sensitivity. I mean, look, you, what you said is true. Spike Lee was doing Spike Lee and every film was a fight, right? And he almost seemed to like feed off that. And it was in a, a, a probably partially calculated to be his marketing campaign, right? Uh-oh, here he comes again with another political statement, right? Mm -hmm. But he was one of the few voices in mainstream popular culture that was saying what now is mainstream popular culture, yeah. right? He was just, he was just a, 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 a almost like the lone. I mean, there was a few, but there was a couple of leading African American filmmakers. But in terms of like him always going to bat with at least some kind of message. I mean, I, I could argue that Inside Job is his only just purely genre movie, right? But and I respect all that. And that was his lane and that's his thing. And this was what you said. Yeah. Well, let's take a break. It's just about a family. It could be a white family. It could be a black family. It doesn't matter. It's just a family. There's no larger message that we need to hammer home, but I don't, I just, it didn't, it didn't compel me. And I, I think the actors are great. And I think he's still got, like you said, he still had some interesting shots and stuff. It just, it's okay. Don't you don't have don't to. Know. You don't I have to justify. There. Well, you, you don't asked. have to justify I mean, your I'm not hatred to shit for a on movie. It. It's, like, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. I know. I know. I mean, I'm it's a, fine. I'm a bad don't, person. It's not. It's not an attack. Not everything is for everybody. Hey, look, man. The the French movie. You know, I I said like. Contempt. Yeah, contempt. It wasn't for me. Like it's just like I love the shots and I love seeing you know Bridget Bardot. I, I mean, it's great to see that. But I, like um, like that movie, I respect it. I liked it. Uh, I mean, I res I respect that it was made. And you just not every movie is for every person. Well, look, I think your listeners should judge for themselves. Watch, I agree. Watch and see which side of the you know. I, I get what you're saying, Alex. It is a meandering film. That's what I love about it is that he had the right. the confidence to meander, and I find Audacity. the meandering very compelling. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree too. It, you again, another name a film that meanders nowadays. Is there a film that meanders nowadays? I mean, there's film without plots or a second act or something, but a film that just generally follows the day in the life of, I am not. There's your, yeah. I mean, there's your, there's your yeah. indies that still, there's, there's always going to be a navel gazing fucking <laughs> that comes Agreed. up the, up the I have to agree. Yes, I right? have to agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, it's just part of it's another subgenre of indie. It's just like, look at me, me and my friends. I will do say stuff. this: Ollie did answer. Ollie did do the assignment right, though, because Crooklyn is a B side from him. There is no doubt. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. Yeah. All right, Alex, what do you think? I think we've it's covered it. Great. Ollie, yeah. what do you think? Ollie, anything to add? It's a good one. Uh, no, I just I. I Think you've allowed me to talk for way too long. It's been gr- <laughs> it's, it's been great, man. You've been a great guest. That's yeah. awesome. Thank you so much, Alex. Uh, actually, oh, can you give me a chance to give me? Can you give me? Well, you can edit it out if it's too cheesy, but uh, give me a chance to plug my my webcast. No, please do. Absolutely. <laughs> no, yeah, please. No. We for, yeah, yeah, we didn't talk yeah, about yeah, it. Talk, talk, talk about, about that podcast. too. Yes. That's another thing that, with all the persistence and the talent and the luck, and the other thing that is great is is side hustles. You know, have other things that got outside of going and you love. You know. So what's your what's your podcast about? You know, it's about one of the things why I wanted to be a director. It's about the fusion of music and cinema. I grew up with spaghetti westerns and James Bond, and you hear that music, and it's like got a kind of hits your brain at a kind of you know, deep, deep level with those images. And so we're doing a, it's with University of North Texas. My colleague is there. They've got the biggest public music school in America with 40,000 students. And every month we do an interview with a leading film composer. I interview them. We show a load of clips from their work and we talk about what it is, why the music works, what's going on. We've had some great people. We've had a guy called Dan Pemberton who, who, did the music to uh, a couple of Ridley Scott films and to uh, Aaron Sorkin's films. We've had Ben Frost, who does the music to this great Netflix show, Dark, which uh, I'm obsessed by. And coming up, we've got Michael Giacchino, who does the music for J.J. Abrams stuff. And we're talking about these tracks and so emotionally, you know, Film and music, I just think it's a beautiful thing. And what these people can do, it's, it's timeless. They, there is no greater connection in the human mind, I, I believe, than the connection between music, place, and time. You can hear right. a song from when you were a teenager driving down the, when you can remember the right. smell, where you were, the, the time of year, time of day, almost to a T because it is attached to a piece of music and I can almost sing every song that I could ever remember. I can't sing it well, but I can, I can almost remember every word, and, but I can never remember a theorem or a proof in math. So, I, you know, no matter how hard I studied. Yeah. So that just shows how magical music is. And, and Alex, you're, you are, you know, you're a musician and a composer yourself. I mean, this obviously... I play one on TV. I play one on TV. I just play one on TV. <laughs> don't, don't, don't be modest. And it's, you have to agree. Like, that's a cool show. That's a great show idea, Ali. So you're connecting, you're basically going through cinema and talking about the great composers in cinema. Is that is that what the show's based on? We do. They talk a little bit about, you know, stuff that's inspired them. And then we get into their work and they talk about, you know, uh, we had this 
great Spanish composers, El Montes, and there was this action scene we showed. And she was like, you know, do you realize that I'm playing steel, using steel flamenco shoes throughout the scene? It's like a, like, it's like a Sicario drugs raid. And she goes through all the different elements that she did to create this completely immersive sound. And you're just like, wow. I know, you know, I didn't realize that. It's amazing what you've done. All the all the bits that are like undertone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, this guy Daniel Pemberton does huge Hollywood films, and he pulls out his iPhone and he's like, "I recorded the biggest track on Danny Boyle's last film on his iPhone." You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he's kind of like, you know. Don't be hamstrung by anything. Every every tool is a tool at your disposal. So just make it. Just make it. Yeah. Exactly. Well. All right. Well, guys, thank you. This was incredible. Yeah, Ollie, awesome interview, man. Thank you for taking the time today. Please uh, come back again when uh, when the show premieres, or if you ever want to promote anything new, and we'd love to have you. Yeah, Ali Blackburn, the the director of Dangerous Liaisons on Stars, also the host. What's the name of the podcast, Ali? You never told us. Music Motion. Music Motion. And is that on Apple Podcasts and uh, Spotify? It's and a or- webcast. Go to musicmotion.com or go to our Instagram at musicmotion. Okay, there we go. And then, um, and Alex, thanks for just... Thank, I, I've never said I don't, I don't say it enough, but just thanks for being you, buddy. I really, <laughs> I really appreciate Aww. doing the show. I love doing the show. I love meeting and talking to uh, um, all the people we get to talk to. It's really an awesome experience. But um, it is. It's a lot of fun. Also, seriously, if you're into it, Donkey Punch. Just remember, Donkey <laughs> Punch. That was his first one. And uh, yeah, and we didn't really talk about Christie. We didn't talk about Christie at all, uh, by the way. Or that's, or that's the Weinstein brothers. That's a separate podcast. Okay. And okay. you know, I, I I'm going to say this out loud because I know he's going to listen to it, but he's going to be pissed because I think this interview with Ollie is better than his. <laughs> <laughs> this, we're talking. We're talking. Listeners are talking about Tony Jeswinski. I think Tony. Tony, we're sorry. You'll have to come back on the show and just do better. I guess <laughs> you're gonna do have to top it. I mean, Evan Ostrowski's <laughs> housing you now. Ollie's housing you. You just got to do better. Outgunning. It's, it's not. It's not. A, I see what you guys are doing here. It's not a competition. It is. It is. It is one hundred percent a competition. Just like making movies, it is all a competition. Life is a competition. Step over the dead bodies in advance. <laughs> uh, all right, uh, Alex. Lovely speak. Thank you so much, guys, for having me on. I've really enjoyed. Thank it. you, Ali. I'm, I'm Alex Ryan Collegian. Gibson. This has been Ali Blackburn, and you've been listening to How I Got Greenlit. Thanks for listening and be sure to join us at How I Got Greenlit on Instagram and Twitter or email us at howigotgreenlit at gmail.com. Thanks, everybody. Porn, Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. I'm comedian Kiki Anderson, and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table, featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics. They all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. 
and Decent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. Next Chapter Podcasts.